This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. For more book recommendations, check out my website, Thoughts from a Page, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page and on Twitter at Burn555555. I want to say thanks to Erica Roebuck, the author of The Invisible Woman, and Becky Peace of Becky on Books for recently sharing my podcast on their social media channels. I greatly appreciate their helping me spread the word about this show. Today, I am interviewing Nancy Johnson. A native of Chicago's Southside, Nancy worked for more than a decade as an Emmy-nominated, award-winning journalist at CBS and ABC affiliates nationwide. A graduate of Northwestern University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, she lives in downtown Chicago and manages brand communications for a large nonprofit. Her debut novel, The Kindest Lie, publishes this week by William Morrow and has been recognized by Entertainment Weekly, Real Simple Magazine, Elle, Marie Claire, The New York Post, The Chicago Tribune, and more. It is one of my Buzz Reads top picks for February as well. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Nancy. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Cindy. I can't tell you how excited I am to finally get to speak with you after communicating on social media for so long. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's great to finally connect. And you've been wonderful about spreading the word about the kindest lie. So thank you. Well, of course, it's such a great book. So I want to make sure everybody that can can read it. Well, why don't we start out with you just telling me a little bit about The Kindest Lie for those that haven't read it yet. Sure. The Kindest Lie is a story of family, sacrifice, and love, all of it at the intersection of race and class at the dawn of the Obama era. And the story itself centers on a woman named Ruth Tuttle. She is a Black woman, Ivy League-educated engineer, very successful and on the come up. Everything is going her way. She's got this great husband, a brand new, beautiful home, but she's been harboring a big secret. She gave birth to a baby when she was just 17 years old, and she left him behind in the dying Indiana factory town where she grew up. So she decides she wants to reconcile with her past, so she goes back to her hometown to search for her son. And of course, when she gets there, nothing is the same. The auto plant that was the beating heart of the town is now closed, and a lot of people are out of work. She reunites with her grandmother and her brother, and they've been keeping some secrets from her as well. And when she gets back there, she meets and she forms this unlikely connection with a young white boy nicknamed Midnight. And he's mired in the very poverty that she managed to escape. And so when the two of them come together, you've got these forces of race and class that put them on a collision course and it upends both of their lives. I thought their relationship was so interesting. And Midnight was clearly struggling to find his place. And Ruth is having all of this family trouble and feeling the loss of her son. And they kind of came together in in a relationship that helped each other, I felt like. Exactly. That's the reason I put the two of them together. Because on the surface, Ruth and Midnight feel like complete opposites. Because one is Black woman, the other one a white boy. Their current day circumstances in 2008 are vastly different in terms of socioeconomic status. But like you said, Midnight is searching for family connection, and so is Ruth. Midnight stands on the outside of things. He's been bullied, and he just doesn't have a really strong foundation. He's a bit untethered, and Ruth is also experiencing that. She's got a great husband, but she's missing that 
connection to her roots, to her grandmother and her brother back home in Ganton. And so even though they are very opposite, they still have this common need for connection and for family. And so they fill a need for each other. And so I think that's why the relationship between them works so well in the novel. I thought so too. And I liked that you included the part about where she takes him to the cafe or the diner and the waitress is giving them such a hard time because I think that is something that still happens regularly and it's kind of crazy to me. It's actually very crazy to me. Oh, I know exactly. It's, yeah, I mean, just it's so unusual for her or unheard of to see this black woman and this white boy. And it's interesting because one thing that Ruth is thinking during that time also, and I think throughout the book, not just not just in that scene, but in other scenes prior to that, is she's worried also, though, about the perception of herself being with this white boy. Is somebody going to think I'm a mammy? Am I the person taking care of him, his babysitter? Are people going to wonder, what are you doing with that little white boy and suspect her of something? And so there's just this uncomfortable feeling all around for the people there. And it's sad that it is that way. But I think that's reality. Even at this point in our lives in 2021, I think that just sometimes seeing people of different races connecting and being together, it's still kind of an anomaly and unheard of for some folks, unfortunately. I agree completely. It's a very common thought, unfortunately, and it's sad that it is. And so I just, I really like that you included that because I felt that it was it was a reality and it's just kind of helpful for people to kind of continue to have that address so that they can think different people of different races can be together without there being a, a paid relationship or a caretaker or whatever that is. Exactly. It can be more than just something transactional, right? Exactly. The other thing that really stuck with me was Ruth and her circle of friends' optimism and excitement about Obama coming in. And I just, it filled me with hope because it took me back to that time and what a great time it was and how exciting. But it also made me kind of sad in light of the last four years and everything we've been through as a result of Obama becoming president. Was that kind of hard to write? That, well, no, it wasn't too hard to write because I actually wrote it before the Trump years. I wrote the book during the second term of Obama. So I had written it back then and I was really inspired by what I saw in 2008, just with the sense of hope, uh, like you said, and this exuberance and this feeling of possibility, particularly in the Black community, but for so many people. I think even if you were white or some other race or ethnicity, And even across political lines, you know, I don't think it was just Democrats that felt good about the outcome of that election, because I think for many people, they felt that we had transcended a barrier and that we had achieved something by electing a Black man president for the first time. But the issue for me that came in with wanting to tell this particular story was that I had heard so many folks saying, we are now entering this post-racial era because we've got a Black man in the White House. And I knew right away that that was not true. <laughs> that was a fallacy. All I had to do was look at my social media feed to see the, the level of vitriol during the campaign. And then throughout both terms for Obama, we saw a lot of racial violence with the Trayvon Martin killing and the Charleston, South Carolina church shooting and just many, many other in-your-face incidents of racism, not to mention all the you know, ongoing subtle racism that happens every day. And so I just felt like, you know what, we're not post-racial, even though this is a time of hope. And so I wanted to examine that and also look at what was happening, not just with 
the Black community, but the white community too. Because during that 2008 campaign, you had a lot of working class white folks saying, you don't really see us and you don't see our struggles and our pain and we're suffering. And so I wanted to examine some of those issues of both race and class in a nuanced way. And that's where I came up with the story. How do you think the optimism for Obama compares to the optimism for Kamala Harris? Mm, Interesting question. I I do think, think there are parallels between those two periods. I mean, in 2008, a lot of people were looking to Obama as this symbol of advancement and progress for us, and in some ways a savior for the country, because we were going through economic turmoil then and the Great Recession. And you look at where we are today in 2021 with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris being elected president and vice president. And again, you see the same parallels because of the COVID pandemic. We are, again, in an economic downturn. People have lost their livelihoods. Plenty of people are suffering right now, and they're looking for someone to lift them up. And after four years of Trumpism, I think so many are looking for more of the multiculturalism, and they're seeing some hope in having a Black and South Asian woman as vice president. I I think it's good to hope. I think it's important to hope and to believe. It it can be problematic to put all of your hope into one person to change things, because even with Kamala Harris as vice president, as wonderful and, and as much of an advancement as that is, the factors that led up to a Donald Trump ascending to power and all of the white nationalism, all of that is still there. And one particular person in a high office is not going to change that. So America still has a lot of work to do, no matter who is sitting in the office of president or vice president. I agree completely. And she also just has so much sitting on her shoulders because not only with the racial issues, but being female. So it's sort of a lot all the way around for her. Definitely. A lot of pressure and a lot of expectations, I think, which I think also connects with my book, too. I think Kamala Harris, there's a lot of pressure around identity. Who are you? During the campaign, when she herself was running for the Democratic nomination for president, she was having to deal with a lot of those issues of, am I really Black enough? Because she comes from a Jamaican father and an Indian mother, and some people are questioning her her cred, her street cred was being black. And I remember her going on the Breakfast Club show and Kamala said, I was born black and I'll die black. It felt like, unfortunately, she had to prove her blackness in this era where we are so focused on identity. Well, this discussion about Kamala, whose name I just mispronounced a minute ago, but I've got it right now, reminds me of Ruth because they're both dealing with issues of identity and how you resolve those. The similarity between the two is really interesting. I've thought a lot about it. Ruth does really struggle with identity because I think she could just not get over this son that she had given up and and just felt she couldn't really move forward without resolving her past. Exactly. And she's stuck really between two worlds. She has a foot in both worlds. There's the Ruth 2.0, if you will, her fancy life as an engineer in Chicago at the great townhouse. That's one part of her. And I think she feels that 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 is kind of who she is, but she is not really accepting the fact that she's tethered to her past in ways that she doesn't realize until she returns to Ganton, Indiana. And that's where we see the life that she had. And she grew up in a working class family. And so she's trying to balance the two. She's got to 
childhood friend who's still there and kind of stuck in the life that Ruth managed to escape. And for her, it's really difficult when we talk about identity. How do you balance those two? How do you straddle both both worlds? Which one is really true to you? Which one is home? And I think she has to figure that out over the course of the book. Or how to reconcile them so that you can actually have them both as part of your identity. You're right. You're right. That, and I think that's the key is to make sure you're kind of integrating both of those and that you don't have to choose. Right. Exactly. That instead you have to realize that your family is your family and that's never going to change, but that doesn't mean you can't set out on your own path and do something completely different than what you were born into. Right. Right. And those circumstances she was born into and that life she lived in Ganton, Indiana, I mean, all of that defined and shaped who she became when she moved to Chicago and began her life there. And I think sometimes when you get a little older and you're looking ahead, you forget to look behind and realize how a parent might have shaped you or a sibling or something you did when you were younger. And that then sometimes when you return home, you look and you think, there's more of me from here than I realize. Yeah, I think that's so true. So true. Well, what was the highlight of writing The Kindest Lie? Oh, the highlight. I think for me, I'll th- I'm thinking about the character I enjoyed writing the most, which was Eli. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's Ruth's brother. And when I first wrote an early draft of this book, I told it from four points of view. So I had four point of view characters. I had Ruth and Midnight, who are the ones who are telling the story now in the final version. But I also told the story from the point of view of Mama, who's the grandmother in the book, and from Eli's point of view. So I felt like they all had something important to say in the narrative. But some of the feedback from the publishing world was that I kind of scattered it a little too much and I needed to focus it on the two primary characters, which are Ruth and Midnight. But I think I'm still able to, in the final book, tell Eli's story through the eyes and through the voice of Ruth. And I just loved crafting him, I think, because Black men are often so misunderstood in media and fiction, you know, in our books, and are often maligned. And I just wanted to show this really interesting, complex Black man who is a good man. He's a good brother. He's a good uncle. He's a good father. But he's down on his luck and is often misunderstood. And I think that just telling his story was really a lot of fun and a joy to write and to make him as complicated as I possibly could. Well, and he really is a good guy. And some of the things he's gotten in trouble for without having any kind of spoiler were things that he did out of the goodness of his heart. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think I worried a little bit. And this is another thing with telling the story of Eli and also being a Black author and telling stories is I worried when I was writing it about how am I representing my own community? And when I say my community, I mean the Black community, because there are so many negative images or there are limited images I worried a bit about, okay, I've got this black man, Eli, who's out of work. Some people might question whether or not he's a good father or not. Is he kind of a deadbeat because he's not with his kids right now? And he's spending too much time at the bar, drinking away his troubles. And yeah, and so I kind of lamented misrepresenting my community. But then I think once I was able to see him as this full human being and make him as nuanced and complex as possible, I think he stands out as being... um, completely his own person. And I'm proud of the way I was able to tell his story and also get to some of the emotions. Because one of the things in the book that you see when the 
men, both black and white, are under economic pressure. There's this toxic masculinity that rises to the surface. And we see that in both Butch and in Eli. So I, I enjoyed kind of showing the toxic masculinity in Eli, but also showing this tenderness when he opens up to Ruth and is able to really show his heart, what some of his hopes and dreams are and his fears. So I just loved crafting him. Well, I really liked him too. And I liked him even more as the story went on. Oh, good, good. I'm glad that you connected with Eli as well. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from the book? Well, I want people to see the world through a lens that they may have never considered before, because those were the things that were keeping me up at night when I was thinking about the election in 2008, is that I just saw us all on social media in our own entrenched corners of the world, not talking to each other, not really connecting. And I'm hoping that through this story, people can can see somebody that in a lifestyle and a person that they may have never known before, and they can develop a new sense of understanding and empathy. That's what's most important to me. And I do believe there's power in fiction and power in novels like The Kindest Lie to help transcend some of those barriers. So that's important to me. But also, you know, I've been talking a lot about issues of race and class, and I and those are important issues in the background of the book. But at its heart, it's a family story, and I want people to read it to be entertained by it as well. I just want you to enjoy the the journey of these characters and also to ask yourself questions that connect with your own life. How tethered are you to your own past? Who in your life made sacrifices for you to be able to achieve the American dream? What were the expectations that the people in your life put on you, and how have those expectations defined who you are today. So so those are some of the questions that I would love for people to reflect on in their own lives as they read the book. And tying in when people make sacrifices for you and what responsibility you have back to them. Oh yeah, that's so true. Yeah, we definitely see a lot of that in the book with particularly with Mama and the expectations that she has placed upon Ruth and and how that's affected Ruth's entire trajectory of her life even though she thinks she's moved on from her past, those expectations sit on her shoulders every day for her. Absolutely. And I think you really see that as the story unfolds. So you talked about starting to write this in the second Obama administration. So do you want to tell me about your publishing journey? Sure, sure. So I spent more than a decade of my professional life working as a journalist, television journalist. And then I got out of that. And my day job, I work in corporate communications. But I always wanted to tell a story that was born of my own imagination, not just what was making news or what the organization I was doing public relations for wanted to get out. But I wanted a story that was close to my own heart. So that's why I started thinking about writing a novel. And it took me six years to write this book. I would stop and start and many, many times and various authors would tell me sometimes, well, if you get to page 60 or get to page 100, you'll keep going and you'll finish the book. And so once I got to page 60, I was like, okay, I've invested this much. I'm going to keep going with it because you have so many stops and starts because you're new at it and you have no idea whether you're even doing it right. And that leads me to the the publishing piece of it. I queried literary agents before the book was ready because you're new at it. You have no idea. You think, oh, I'm literary hot stuff and uh, my book is ready. And it was not ready. I had Caroline Levitt, the New York Times bestselling author, 
give me a manuscript critique, which was wonderful. But I only had her set of eyes on it, and I made some quick revisions, and then I started sending it to agents. And of course, the rejections started pouring in. One of those rejections was from Danielle Bukowski at Sterling Lord Literistic. And I emailed her to thank her for considering my work. And I said, I plan to revise based on your notes and notes I've received from others. And she said, well, if you plan on revising the book, I'd love to take a look again once you've revised. Fast forward two years. In that two-year period, I got five beta readers to review the book. I went to several prominent workshops, Tin House, Hurston Wright, Cambilio Fiction, and workshop excerpts of the book. And then I resubmitted to Danielle Bukowski in 2019, so two years later. And lo and behold, she said, yes, she loved the book and she wanted to represent me. We took the book out on submission. And even though it took a long time to get an agent, I was only on submission for about two, two and a half weeks before I got the book deal with William Morrow, HarperCollins. So it was obviously ready, at least for the publishing world, to accept it. Well, that's very exciting. I'm always just so amazed when you hear some of these stories, just that anybody gets their book published. There's there's so much that goes into it all. You're right. There is so much that goes into it. People often ask advice about getting a book published. And you know, I meet writers who are just starting out and you know, they say, oh, I wonder what the trends are. What are all the editors at the big publishing houses looking for? Do I need to have a book with girl in the title for it to sell? And I tell people not to chase the trends. Write the story that's the story of your heart. Tell the story that only you can tell, the one that you're meant to tell, because that's the one that you're going to put your passion in. That's the story that you're going to tell well. So don't chase trends because the publishing process is so long. It's about 18 months after you get a book deal before your book is going to hit the shelves. So if you're right into a trend, by the time your book gets published, that trend will be long gone. So you definitely don't want to do that. So that's my best advice is just to write the book that you're meant to write. Well, that's what I was just going to say about trends, because by the time you can identify a trend, if you're just starting to write then, that trend is long gone by the time your book would be out there. Plus, I do agree with you that writing what you know or what sounds good to you or your idea, you're going to have so much more that you're pouring into that than if you just say, okay, I need to write another domestic thriller because that's what everybody's buying. You're not going to be able to come up with a story that I think is compelling as one that you're driven to write. That's so true. And I I think when you write a good book that you're passionate about, I think those books still rise, even if domestic thrillers are the hot thing right now. The book that you've written that's from your heart is one that's going to rise to the top, I think, if, if you've done it well. I agree. And I am not a trend follower. So I usually don't really like to read whatever the trend is. I like to read those books that stand out because they're different. So I'm always looking for that type of book versus the one that's following the last eight books that were popular. Right. That's the way I am too. So, Well, tell me a little bit about the title and how you came up with it. Oh, yes, yes. So The Kindest Lie. It's so funny that that title has stuck the entire time. <laughs> because as a writer, you write a title and you think of it as a working title. I figured, well, once I get an agent, the agent will probably say, oh, no, we need a new title. Nope. Then I thought, well, once we get an editor at a publishing house, surely that editor will want a, maybe a different title. But no. So it it has stuck, which is amazing. That's the, really my main primary title that I came up with when I got serious about titles for the book. But The Kindest Lie works on several levels. I think the kind, I say in the beginning of the book that a lie can be kind to you if you want it to be, if you let it. And it speaks to all of the people who have kept secrets and lied in this book. 
And they've done it not for any malicious reason, but they've done it out of love and for the best of intentions, even though it may have been a misguided lie or untruth, but they did it to protect the people they loved. And so that's why the lie is kind. And the other thing, it works on another level, and that's the macro level of America. I truly believe that America has told itself some lies as well, that it's told the lie that we are more honorable and decent than we really are. The title just seems to to work on several levels, and so I love it. Oh, I love that too. I definitely recognized the part related to the the lies in the book and that they were told with good intentions, but I hadn't thought about the macro level. And in addition to the fact that we're not all really good at heart, I also think is sort of the the lie that the country is built on, or at least like since the Civil War, the idea that some of these things were done with the best intentions for people. And of course they weren't. Slavery was not helpful to the people who were enslaved at all, no matter what people try to tell themselves. So that's interesting. I like that second dynamic to the title. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it adds something different, a new dimension to thinking about the book and the themes of the book. That's the word I was looking for instead of dynamic, a new dimension to the title. Well, what about the cover? I'm a huge cover person, and your cover caught my attention, actually. That's why I first grabbed the book. Oh, of course. Yeah, I love the cover. The cover designer is Ploy Sirapot from William Morrow. So she's a brilliant designer. I thought she did a great job. They were really good about working with me, uh, the team at William Morrow. My editor asked me to send in some covers that I like, covers I don't like give a little bit of direction on the things that I do appreciate about cover design. And we wanted something bright that would stand out. I like the font, the script font, also the house and the building blocks and everything that goes into building the house. And then there's the artistic rendering of a woman in the doorway symbolizing Ruth. I know I'd asked the cover designer to make sure her head is up, is tilted up high. Because I was just thinking about the representation of Black women and wanting to be proud so just small details like that matter to me, but I, I do. I love the, the cover and it seems to really pop, uh, especially these days with people searching online and you've just got the thumbnail image. I think it definitely pops and it stands out. I agree. And I love that about Ruth having her head up high. Yeah. Yeah. That was important to me. I do think that the thumbnail image makes such a difference because as you are on Barnes and Noble or wherever else you're going to be flipping through images, it's nice when one like that will just immediately grab your attention. Plus, the second you see it somewhere, you're going to know it's yours. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I'm able to pick it out. When I see that big mosaic of covers and some of the most anticipated lists, I'm like, oh, there's mine. (laughs) Which is so fun, I'm sure. Well, I hate to even ask this because you're just getting your first book out into the world, but everybody always wants to know, are you working on anything else at the present? (laughs) Yeah, that's always the question. I am in the early stages of working on something new. I can't say much about it because I'm still having my uh, editor review it and see what she thinks. (laughs) So hoping for a deal for book two. But what I can say is that it also explores issues of race, class, and identity. Those are the issues that keep me up at night and the ones that I'm always consumed by. So I'm sticking with that. But certainly different time periods, though, when I'm also exploring dual timeline. So stay tuned for that. Well, I'm always a fan of dual timeline, and I love to hear how people write them because it varies so widely. So we'll have to come back and talk about it when that book is actually coming out into the world. Yes, definitely. 
Well, what do you like to do when you're not writing or reading? It seems like I'm always writing, reading, or promoting this book. It's hard to imagine life beyond that. Yeah, because I am reading always, always, even before getting the book deal. I had been running. Lately, I haven't been doing that. I've run some half marathons and 5Ks, that kind of thing. So I enjoy doing that when I'm able to get out and do it. I also just love TV, movies, that kind of thing. Dining out when we're not in the middle of a pandemic is always fun. But those are the things that I mostly enjoy and mainly just time spent with family and friends. Do you like to run along the lake there in Chicago? Yeah, I have. Yeah, the lakefront is so beautiful. Yeah, it's definitely a great, great area to run. Well, the other thing that had caught my attention once I was looking at your book was that you went to Northwestern, as did I. And then when I was looking at the back of your book today, I saw then you went to UNC and I went to Duke. So I was laughing. I was like, our paths were a little similar. Very much so, right? We were like right on the same track. And then I know with the <laughs> the rivalry there between Duke and <laughs> UNC, we diverge a bit. I went to law school at Duke, and I loved that whole area. And then I have actually have a daughter at Northwestern now, so she is a sophomore. So it's been really fun to be going back up there and being on the campus again and just seeing everything. Yes, yes. It's a beautiful campus. It is, and I just absolutely loved it. It's a really a great place. So, well, before we wrap up, would you like to tell me what you've read recently that you really liked? Sure. So a few books that I've read recently. One is The Other Black Girl. I got an advanced copy of that. It's by Zakia Delilah Harris. So it doesn't come out until this summer, but it's something that people should put on their to-be-read list. It is just a great book that explores the publishing industry. And so it's about two Black women in publishing. And one is there just by herself, the only Black girl there. And then when another Black woman shows up, it's like, oh, the other Black girl. (laughs) And then the thriller part of it ensues. And it's being compared to the movie Get Out and The Devil Wears Prada. That's so funny that you just mentioned that because I literally just sent an email today to the publicist saying, I've been dying to read this book. Could I possibly get a copy? It looks really good. Yes, it is good. I feel very lucky to and fortunate to have a copy of it. But yeah, you'll definitely want to talk with uh, Zakia about that book. The next one is one that you're familiar with, Waiting for the Night Song, and just such a beautiful book that deals with female friendship, childhood secrets, climate change, immigration, Lots of current timely issues. So I definitely recommend that people get that one. That one came out in January. And then the final one is The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Pinner. And that one comes out in March. And it is one that explores an apothecary in 18th century London who gives these poisons to women who have been wronged by the men in their lives. So it's very twisty in that sense. It's a feminist kind of book. I absolutely loved it, and I recommend that one as well. Okay, good. Those are all three great recommendations. And Julie and I, when I interviewed her, talked about how excited we are for our event in February with you and her. We just sent out the invitation, actually, and we're really looking forward to talking to the two of you together. It's going to be really fun. Oh, I think that's going to be wonderful to talk about our books and to talk about literary friendships. Yeah, this is going to be a blast. And your new article. So I think that I was glad that it came out and I thought that'll be another interesting topic. Yeah, I did a, I wrote an article for Real Simple Magazine, the February issue called Friendship in Black and White, talking about some of the nuances and complexities of my cross-racial friendship with Julie Carrick Dalton. So definitely one to read. 
Absolutely. Well, Nancy, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Oh, this has been so much fun. Thank you for having me, Cindy. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Nancy's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks so much to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.